Hello, and welcome to episode two of That 60s Recording Podcast. I am your host, uh, Joe Montague, um, and today is a very special episode, and I'm really, really excited to share this with you. Um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Before I start, I just want to say a huge, huge thank you um, to all of you listeners. Um, the l- take-up of this has been as far exceeded my expectations um, already, um, and it seems to just keep growing. Every time I check on Podbean, there's been loads more listens, and I'm, I'm gobsmacked at how far around the world it's got there's most of the listeners seem to be in america which is great hello all of you americans um and there's listeners in australia all over europe um loads in eastern europe Um, i just genuinely can't believe it and i'm so grateful that you all want to listen to it and are interested in the same stuff that i am it's just really cool um if you are listening please don't forget to like and give us a little review on itunes it helps with all of that the jazz that iTunes does, Apple Podcasts, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'll stop rambling and I'll talk about today's episode. So I'm really, really, really thrilled to have um, the legendary Ken Scott come and talk to us uh, on this episode of the podcast. Um, he was such a lovely guy, as you'll hear. Um, he obviously needs no introduction. Um, I I do give him quite a long introduction in the, <laughs> in the episode. Um, but yeah, just enjoy it. He's a legend. We talk about a lot of cool stuff, um, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Here he is, Ken Scott. So, um, really, really privileged today to be joined by um, a recording royalty, if I may, <laughs> uh, Mr. Ken Scott. Um, I would imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you will absolutely know who this man is. Um, but just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to list some of the people that you've worked with. Um, and it's a pretty astounding list. Uh, obviously, the Beatles, Jeff Beck Group, uh, Pink Floyd, Elton John, David Bowie. I mean, that's that's the sort of uh, the creme de la creme of British pop as it, you know, that, that exists. Uh, Level 42, Duran Duran, Billy Cobham, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Supertramp, uh, Stanley Clark, and I'm sure there's lots more that... Uh, that are not uh, out there listed. Um, that is a pretty ridiculous list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely ridiculous. It's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, it's uh, it's amazing. I mean, is is there anybody you wish that you had recorded with that you didn't work with? Well, if we're talking drums, then there there are two. I would love to have recorded uh, Bonham, see what his kit was really like, uh, and Gene Krupa. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, that's that's about it. And um, what is it about Gene Krupa that piques your interest? I don't know. I I loved his what he did from way back when. There was there was a an old movie on on TV one Saturday afternoon. I think it was a, a musical of some kind, and he was in it. And I just have this memory of his doing a complete drum solo in a in the engine room of a boat wow and it just blew me away and just since then boy i would love to have worked with him there's definitely a musical drummer is that is that something i mean i guess like as a producer in a uh as an engineer the the nature of the the artists you've worked with have tended to be quite artistic artists if you know what i mean and uh I, I've covered the, the, the gamut. You've got the, the very straightforward uh, English rock drama, Woody Woodman Z. Uh, slightly further than that, you've, you've got Ringo, who is a, an incredible English drummer, but he threw some things in that, that most English drummers wouldn't. And then I go to the extreme of the most musical drummer I've ever worked with, Terry Bozio. I've done everything in between. Steve Gadd. Uh, yeah, just... A whole bunch of them. I mean, obviously, as a as a drummer, this is something I'm really interested in. I mean, who uh, do you have a favourite drummer that you've worked with? No, no. <laughs> for different for different types of music, it depends what you're talking about. As I say, the most musical drummer was was Bozio, but uh, there there is no other drummer like him. So uh, on one level, he is my favourite, but then Cobham, he was amazing. Uh, Ringo, Woody, uh, Bob Seidenberg, it just uh, so many incredible drummers I've worked with. Yeah, that is a, that's a special list as well. <laughs> I wonder if we could talk right back at the beginning. When you first 
sent out applications to start to, to work in studios. Did you have any idea what working at somewhere like Abbey Road might look like? First and foremost, let me go back. What I wanted to do was work with tape, not so much. I loved music, so obviously if I could do put the two together, it would be great. But I'd fallen, I got a Grundig TK25 tape machine when I was 12 and a half, and I fell in love with tape. It, it, that, that was it for me. And it was looking towards getting a job working with tape. Uh, I, a, a couple of years after that, I guess maybe when I was 14, something like that, there was a TV series on uh, called Here Come the Girls, which was based around each, each week they'd have a different top English female singer. And there, there happened to be one week, uh, one with a singer called Carol Dean that had had a couple of hits over here that I was totally in lust with. Uh, and I had to watch that. And at one point it panned from her singing into a mic and it panned up to this window looking down on her. Now, I didn't know that. So I got an idea of what a studio could be like just from that. What I didn't know at the time was that that particular studio would become a home away from home for me because it happened to be number two studio. What at the time was EMI recording studios and it, it now is Abbey Road. So, yeah, I had a vague idea, but uh, it was very vague. In your mind's eye, when you were when you were applying for, for places at studios, was Abbey Road where you wanted to end up, or did, was that just what came along at the right time? It, it was the only one that came along. <laughs> was serendipity. Yeah, uh, yeah. Being at the right place at the right time, that, that whole thing. So you started at Abbey Road would you say it was at the height of of Beatlemania so you you must have been aware of everything that was happening when you got the job there of course with them they were my favorite band it it was about two two or three weeks before they their first trip to the states so at, at that point yeah they were they were big they hadn't broken the American market at that point so they weren't they hadn't reached the pinnacle of the biggest band in the world, but they were certainly still huge when I, when I started there. Did you envisage working with them at some stage? That must have been an aim at that point. No way on earth. No. <laughs> no, of course not. In fact, it was the, the interview that I had, uh, one of the questions was, uh, who is your favourite band? And just... I always go on about that voice that's deep within you that you have to listen to. And that voice deep within me told me that uh, don't say the Beatles. They were my favorite band, but it said, don't say that. So I didn't. I said to Dave Clark five. And the, the two guys that uh, were interviewing me looked at each other and then said, why? And once again, listening to that inner voice, it was, well, I, I think the difference is between, uh, Dave Clark Five and everyone else is the addition of the saxophone and the and the keyboards. It makes them sound different to everyone else, and they just looked at each other and grinned, and that was it. And it it was because I didn't say the Beatles that I got the job. So you were already developing an ear for for distinctive sounds. My inner voice was I was <laughs> subconsciously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm always fascinated by the fact that Abbey Road particularly, I don't know necessarily if other studios work this way, but I like the, you know, you, you got the job in the tape library and then you work your way up through the through the motions. Um, to me, that takes away some of the mysticism of how does this person become a producer because it, it makes the process a bit more stepwise and that humanises it for me a little bit. Do you feel that that was a good way of learning um, to go through those steps? At the time, uh, probably not quite so much because it's, well, when am I going to move up to become a recording engineer? Yeah. It, it, at the time, it seemed as if everything was dragging. I, I would like things to have worked, gone on uh, faster. But thinking back on it, no, I had, the, I had the most amazing training in the world. No one will ever have the kind of training that I had because... Yeah, that whole thing of starting at the bottom and working up, that is the best way to learn. Now, for me, it was that much better uh, because of uh, that band again, the Beatles. The first time I ever sat behind a mixing console on a session, I had no idea what any of it did. And it happened to be for the Beatles. 
Uh, and so the, the first session was was a write-off, but it was a write-off both from me and from the band. So it wasn't quite that bad. And because I'd worked with them as an assistant engineer for, I think it was four albums, we'd, we'd built enough of a relationship, I think, that uh, they trusted me that I would actually get something together, which I did. And we continued working together. But within working with that particular band, I got to experiment more than anyone would ever get to experiment. Here's, a, here's the band that they have no time limit, they have no monetary problems, uh, budgets or anything, and they wanted things to sound different every single time they were recorded. So that gave me carte blanche to experiment with mics in different positions, different pieces of equipment, and I, I learned what I like to work with, the mics I like to work with, and EQ and all of that kind of thing, through them, just being able to experiment with them. It, it was amazing. And most engineers, get if they get thrown in, they're doing like three, or it used to be, they were doing three songs in a three-hour session. You have to be on the ball then. I didn't. I, I could do whatever I wanted, and it was amazing. I'd never really thought about it like that. That sounds quite liberating. Look, I, I, I was working on the premise that I could screw everything up, use completely the wrong mics in completely the wrong place, overcompress, wrong EQ, all of that. And there was as much chance of the members of the band coming up and saying, oh, that sounds like shit, as there was them coming up and saying, oh, that sounds like shit, but I like it, we'll use it. And that's <laughs> amazingly freeing. I can imagine. And how did that go down with um, the brass at EMI? Did you feel like you were able to experiment because of you were working with the Beatles? Kind of gave you a freedom pass. I was hauled over the coals so often with with the top brass because the Beatles would always want to do things in the evening. Now, we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. No one had the home phone numbers for any of the management or anything like that. So when the Beatles wanted to do something, I'm not going to be the one to turn around and say, no, you can't do it. The management maybe could do that, but I had to... I had to go along with it. And so then the next day that when the management found out, they would haul you over the coals, tell you off, and then you'd be put back and the same thing would happen in a couple of days' time. <laughs> in terms of specifics, um, I don't I don't know um, how much specific gear we, we are going to talk about or how, you know, how much is necessary to get into because the information is out there. But, um, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously interested in drums and that's in some ways the most complex of the the mic setups did you have a recognized way of recording drums that you were taught that you used well always at the start i i was following on an engineer called jeff emmerich yes and uh i of course set up exactly the same way as he did to start with because i had no idea what i was doing so of course i'm going to follow what what he had done and then slowly but surely things would would get changed I, how things changed, I have no idea. I, I honestly can't remember. But they did change. Like As I said, the Beatles wanted things to sound different every time. And it reached the point, I remember one time going into the room where all of the mics were kept. Paul wanted to record, he wanted to use a different mic on something, and I can't remember what it was. But he and I went into the mic room. We're looking around. I'm looking at the mics that I think might sound good on it, He's completely different way of looking at things. He said, oh, I like that mic up there. It looks cool. We'll use it. He was more interested in the way it looked than how it sounded. I love that. It, it's that kind of thing. So there was a lot of experimentation, yeah. Well, they pulled you to, to, to come up with things. You, you've had to all the time. To me, that's ringing forward the fact that you obviously went on to be a, a successful producer is this your the beginnings of your education in in I mean production to me is uh, is among other things tr- coming up with unique sounds that work for the song and especially in pop music help songs stand out on their own two feet this this feels like a good training for you moving forward to what you were later going to start doing my training towards what I eventually did started the first day I started at Abbey Road uh, it, it's to me. 75% of the gig is personality driven. It's how you get on with people. If they don't trust you, if they don't like you, they're going to be looking over your shoulder the entire time. And uh, that's the worst way to try and work. 
You've got to get on well with people. And being an assistant engineer uh, at Abbey Road, working on, they were always three-hour sessions. Except for the Beatles, they were generally three-hour sessions. It would be 10 to 1 in the morning, 2.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon, 7 to 10 in the evening. And you'd be working on totally different things. In the morning, you could be doing a big classical session and seeing how the classical engineer worked and how the classical producer worked. Uh, and got on with the artist and all of that. Then the after, afternoon, you could be recording a dance, working on a dance band recording, see how they work. And then the evening, you could be working with Pink Floyd and seeing how they all work. It, it, it's it was the perfect place, a training to see how people work together, what what you have to do as a producer to draw the best out of people and all of that. Now. As far as I'm concerned, with regard to, to production, uh, I'm, I figure my gig is uh, to get the, the recording the best way possible uh, in the way that the act wants it to be, just to show them off at the, be the best way possible. I'm not there to, to help sell records. Uh, I'm there just to make a great recording that they'll be proud of and that I'll be proud of. To me, a, a, a great record starts off, it's the song and the performance. They're the two things that are the most important thing on a record. Uh, everything else is just icing on the cake. All of the, yeah, everything else is, is just there. If the performance isn't there, if the, uh, if the song isn't there, it means shit. It won't be, rem it could be a hit, but it won't be remembered in five years, ten years' time. I think it's quite interesting. Uh, something that the it was done. I mean, in the sixties, seventies, and is still still done now. Sometimes is is the getting the basic track together, and that's perhaps what you're talking about as the song being the song, and the bells and whistles are the the overdubs and the other bits and pieces. Um, do you think that there's something to be taken from doing a basic track? that perhaps isn't there now with, you know, you might start with a, an acoustic guitar and just run it over and over again until it's right and then and chopping parts, and that just didn't exist. That's, that's where I draw the line. Yeah. The chopping the parts. It's, no, you, you should get a good performance. When I, when I do vocals, uh, I will, once again, the, 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 the luck, the blessings that I've had. I've worked with the most amazing uh, studio performer ever, as far as I'm concerned, and that was Bowie. It's, I, I co-produced uh, four albums with him, and 95% of the vocals on those four albums were one take, beginning to end, first take. Wow. I would uh, run the tape, just to get him to sing along a bit so I could get the sound and the level. Then I'd take the tape back, hit record, and what he did that one time through is what we're still here today. That's what I mean by performance. It's not, oh, I'm only going to sing the chorus once, and then you copy and paste it every time, or you keep doing that. Now, because they're in, I've yet to find another Bowie, uh, what I generally do for vocals is I'll do seven takes from beginning to end because I want a performance every time. And then I'll go away and on my own, I'll piece it together. But I, it has to be beginning to end, otherwise you don't get that perform, performance. That's incredible that so much of it is, is first take. That's probably why so much of it sounds so special. <laughs> um, but but it's, it's, it's down to a, good songs. Look, for, for me, a, a song, a good song is one that you can sit down with an acoustic guitar and it sounds just as good with one acoustic guitar and a vocalist as it does with all the bells and whistles. That is a good song. Bowie wrote good songs and he certainly knew how to perform them. I mean, that's something that that you hear a lot about when you talk to um, talk to people about the, the top performance, even in this, this uh, you know, modern performers. I'm trying to think of a, an example of somebody that might be this. I mean, Adele springs to mind. I'm sure I've heard similar stories of of artists like that who are really worth their, the caliber, that they, they just have it and they are true performers in their own right rather than um, the flash in the pans who have to be cobbled together, if you like. Yeah, one thing that, that I've noticed, it's not just the artists that want things cobbled together, to use your word. 
it seems as if everyone is, that's the way records are supposed to be made now. I, before moving back over to England, uh, I lived two years in Nashville, uh, which to me, Nashville is now the, the, the center of uh, the music industry in, in the States. Everywhere else is dying, whereas uh, Nashville is just building and building and building. And it's not just country music now. It, it's thanks to people like Jack White. There's there a multitude of different types of music coming from there. But th there are some amazing, amazing session musicians there. And they're not even giving their best these days because they know that at the end of the, the their take, someone's going to push the button and say, thanks, guys, we got enough. We can copy and paste it together. Why, if, if you're going to be told that at the end of a take, why do you even bother giving your, your best? Why struggle to, to up your performance? Because someone is going to say, oh, we can copy and paste it together. You're absolutely right. I've, these are things that we should know, and they seem so obvious, but they're, not, they're just not being listened to. I don't know how we've ended up at a point where, where – well, a lot of records are made this way and then records that aren't made this way are celebrated like they're something special, which they are, but this was being done 60 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's that's why they're still interested in, in records from uh, 60, 50, 40 years ago because yeah. that's the way we used to do it. We used to have uh, talent uh, that performed and wrote good songs. We don't. We didn't need 30 people to write a damn song. <laughs> We didn't need nine producers on a track. It's absurd where we've reached now. Yeah, and I, I completely concur. And then some of the some of the tracks that have so many people on uh, seem well. I mean, lyrically, they're they're not not even anywhere. <laughs> there's there's nothing happening. Quite correct. Um, so I know that you do a lot of work um, at the Beckett University now. Is this something that you're you're trying to instill in students that you work with or um if this is quite the right word but the the maybe the balance or i was going to say juxtaposition of of your experiences recording and then what you're seeing people recording now in in young people who are moving into the industry well it, it's each to each to its own there there is no there is no wrong in recording uh, as long as you are getting what you want uh, out of the recording, then it's good. If you want it to sound lo-fi and you're making it sound lo-fi, that's great. Who am I to, to say it's bad? Uh, there, there are certain things for me that I, I find hard to, to deal with in uh, students' recordings, and I will always pull them, pull them up on it. One of the things for me is the, the volume of the vocal. I... I I can't mix in the box. I can only mix using a, a console. I like the tactile thing of pushing up and playing with faders. And one of the things that I do is I play with the vocal level all the way through a song. I, learn, I, I will go through quite a few times just learning the, the, the quiet words, the loud words, the quiet syllables and loud syllables because uh, I play the vocal all the way through to make sure that it's at the volume I want it every single moment of that, that recording. Whereas when you do it in the box, you can't do that. It, it, it's, and so what happens is a lot of students just, they'll find the level for the vocal at some point during the song. Now, at the beginning, it might be a bit too loud because there's only acoustic guitar or piano going on at the beginning. So the vocal may be a bit too loud then. But then the drums and the bass come in and everything comes up a bit and then the vocal's at the right level. But then all of the guitars come in and everything. And because the vocal's just left at one level, suddenly it's a bit too quiet. You can't always hear everything. Then those drop out and you go back to the, the drums and the bass and the acoustic guitar and piano and it's at the right volume again. Then it gets quiet. It, it, it's that kind of thing that where uh, there are things you can't do in the box that you can do on a console. And that, that annoys me. It, it, the concentration should be on, on getting everything to, to come through at the right, right volume. Of course, the, the vocal is, is one of them. I, I find it really interesting because what you're describing is 
mixing. You're just mixing. And that, especially with, with um, videos on YouTube that make, uh, that are trying to entice you to click on them, makes mixing um, for a lot of people look like it's a bit of an enigma. And obviously there's a huge amount of skill and art involved in in mixing a record. Um, but a lot of these sort of tips and tricks, so to speak, make you think that there's there's some real super mystery behind it and i think a lot of uh a lot of what's missed is what you're describing sitting with the the vocal level and a fader and just riding the vocal through the song rather than trying to compress it and ds it to make it fit or one size it can't be one size fits all right precisely ah but if you use this particular piece of gear your mixes will always be perfect (laughs) yeah like fuck (laughs) <laughs> it must be such it's such a frustration for you having gone through i don't know what you'd call this it's almost classical training for for mixing now that it's really um on the face of it could be quite a simple task and i think there's a lot of i say could be i'm really careful with the words that i'm trying to use here because i you know i don't want to the the skill involved is unreal and and um, but it's on on the face of it, the principles of it are fairly simple. But what, what, one of the other things, though, that makes, for me, makes mixing that much simpler is that I make a lot of my calls uh, on the recording. Number one, I will decide. I, I've heard of uh, mixing engineers. They'll get Pro Tool uh, set up. And there are like 12 different guitar solos because no one would make the decision as to which is the guitar solo. So they have to go through and do it. I make decisions all the time. I EQ on the way in. I get the sound that I want on the way in and it's there permanently. More often than not, when I come to mix, I don't have to EQ anything else. That's It's really interesting. It's quite inspiring to hear that. And do you have any idea of why why people are incapable of making decisions at the moment, it seems. I, I come from a time when we had very few choices. Most of the stuff, because I started on four track. We'd be recording on one track. We'd be recording bass, drums, keyboards, and possibly guitars, all mixed together at that, the same time. So you had to make the decision of what all of these things sounded like for the final thing, then and there. I've continued that. Okay, I moved to eight track, so I could separate it a bit, but it was still very much making decisions on on what the sound was going to be like very early on, and that's just continued. And I I just still do that. I'm I'm a firm believer that trainee engineers should start off on four track. There should be one semester in universities where all they work on is four track. I, th- I think you're probably absolutely right. That sounds like a brilliant idea. Yeah, of course. No, no, no one wants to work that way, so it, it doesn't actually happen. One, one of the things that that I find that I like to do at Leeds Beckett, and I push to do as much as possible, is actual sessions. I can I can talk till I'm blue in the face, and a certain amount of what I say goes in. But uh, the best way to see how I what I do and how I work is to watch me actually working, because there are a lot of things I've been doing this for 50 years. There are a lot of things that I do without even thinking about it. So those things that I do without thinking about, I don't teach because I don't realize what I'm doing. Whereas if I'm doing a session and there are people behind me watching, they'll see me reach out and change the EQ on something suddenly. Why did you do that? I have to think about it at that point, and oh well, I did it because, and it, it's much, to me that's a much better learning experience. That's the way I learned that, and and experimenting, and that that's another thing with so many students. There are a lot of rooms at uh, Leeds Beckett, and the number of times I walk down the corridor, and most of those rooms are empty. They should be using those rooms to experiment, to find their own sound. If they can't find someone to come in and play for them, then at least sit in there and listen to stuff that they like through the speakers in there. So they get used to hearing, well, I like that record because the bass sounds like that, but I like that record because the drums sound like that. It it, it should be an entirely a learning experience. 
it shouldn't be oh, I'm going to take a couple of classes and I can then I can go and produce and engineer you too or Beyonce or or whatever yeah that seems to be an expectation of um you know you watch a few YouTube videos and and suddenly you can do it um and I think maybe a lot of the websites where you can employ things like um I don't know if you're aware of these, but like Fiverr or there's a, a few other websites where you can book people to do things very cheaply and probably potentially not very well. And it might, you know, presumably will be the people who who we're discussing now. I mean, obviously, there's there's nothing wrong with people learning, but at the same time, there's there's nobody showing the way like you're describing anymore. Right. And it, 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 that goes as far for me. It goes as far as like mastering uh, now mastering is this super complex thing where you have to use all of this gear to make something sound good. I come from the day where a mastering engineer would do as little as they possibly could to the, to what they get in because it's the engineer and the producer have decided how they want something to sound. And so the, the mastering engineer gets it. They may add like two 2 dB at 10K or something like that, just to give a little bit more up top, just minor changes like that. Uh, but nowadays, they go nuts. They'll, they'll do all of this kind of stuff to what they're given. And I've, I've had this discussion with mastering engineers that, that I really like. And they say the problem is that most of what they get in these days is shit. So they have to they have to try and make it sound good. My argument to that is if you're making it sound good, the people that are giving it to you are never going to learn that what they're creating is shit. They think that what they hear on the radio or wherever is what they did. And it's not what you did. But they say, look, it's a business. We This is how... We have to get them to keep on coming back. If it means that we make them sound great all the time, that's the way it has to be. That That's a fascinating point. I mean, obviously, I'm fascinated by the fact that you spent two years mastering at Abbey Road, if I'm if I'm correct, before you'd even mixed a song. Yes. That feels, in the modern way, that's backwards. <laughs> no, it's not. The re... The, don't forget, we were talking about... Uh, we, we were working on vinyl back then. Now, there are limitations to what you can put on vinyl. You can't have too much low end. The record will jump. You have to be very careful of, of high end and of, especially of sibilance because it, it will make the, uh, the, the cutting head distort. So they, the, the management at, at Abbey Road, they were clever enough that they realized it's best to learn the problems before you can work on something tape which you have absolutely no problem putting anything on that's i, I it seems so sensible i again you can't see but i'm grinning away because I, I love this is why i love the this style of recording so much is it's just feels like a, a, a something that's not there nowadays it's it's really um really been lost now I, I find it really really interesting and i think if um i hope i remember this correctly um, I think I mentioned when I first got in contact with you, I read your the book your book about a year ago and blitzed my way through it because um, it just ate all of the information up. And I think there's a, a part of it you talk about drum miking um, and you're talking about phase and you said, I, again, I hope I remember this correctly, you, you said, phase, what's phase? We just knew that it sounded good <laughs> and that was it. And when I read that, that just was, that's amazing. I love that attitude. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> all of the, all of the, we have become so infatuated with minutia. It, it's it's ridiculous. All of the different things, everything from well, you have to have a DI box that costs a thousand pounds because this is gold plated, that's platinum plated, and all that. You'll never get a good bass uh, bass sound without this very expensive DI box. That's bullshit. The ones that we used to use were put together by the guy upstairs for like five pounds. And it's, you need a good bass, you need a good bass player, then you'll get a great sound. This whole thing about specific uh, mic pre's and, and specific boards, yes, they all have their own uh, characteristics, but if you're any good at what you do, you can get a good sound out of anything. The number of times I've been asked, 
what's the most important thing in a home studio or in any studio? And I always say it's the monitors, the, the speakers that you listen through, because you can have the biggest, all of the gear that you use can be the shittiest there is. But if you know what you're listening to, you can get a great thing out of it. Just think of Joe Meek, like the stuff that he put together and, and it, it, he cobbled things together and it got some amazing things. Uh, but if uh, the, the monitors that you're using aren't up to, up to par, then you can have the best gear in the world or down in front of you and you won't know what you're hearing. So probably even with the best gear, you won't get a great sound. I mean, monitors are expensive. They, it feels like they only benefit the person who's listening to them, whereas the, I guess a lot of people will want to invest money in what they think other people will will hear is good. But what you're saying is right, that if you're not, if you're hearing it right, then it sounds good, and then the other people will hear it right, and it will sound good. That's Precisely. Yeah. Look, I, I, the, the, also, if, if reading, reading the book, uh, the, the story of Hey Jude. Yes where uh, we started to work on Hey Jude at Abbey Road. Because of a film crew coming in, it, uh, it all sort of went, went the wrong way. And uh, they were booked, in, the band were booked into uh, Trident Studios, which was a brand new facility at that point. It was the first studio in England with 8-track. And they wanted to experiment with 8-track. So they had three days booked at the studio. They went there and they recorded Hey Jude and mixed it there. Well, I went down the last night and heard the mix and I sat in front of the mixer, mixing console and they played it for me and I was absolutely blown away. It sounded amazing. I'd never heard anything sound so good, so loud and clean. It was, it was incredible. A couple of days later, the tape finishes up at Abbey Road and they're cutting uh, playback acetates of it up in one of the mastering rooms. And I go up to listen to it and there was absolutely no high end on it whatsoever. It sounded as if there was a pillow in front of the speaker. And it, it, it finished up. We spent ages uh, EQing it to try and get some high end onto it. And that's what finished up being uh, released. But what I eventually found out, because I then went eventually went to work at Trident, the monitors in there were putting out much too much high end. So you think you've got enough when you're in the control room and it sounds great. But because it's boosted too too much coming out, there actually isn't enough on the tape. Yeah, so they're, they're obviously the the argument for for hearing, making sure you're hearing correctly. Yeah, because they they had top top notch gear, really good gear, but the monitors were hyped so that it would sound better there than it did anywhere else. Something I wanted to ask you now we're we're kind of there in in the in the era that now I, I seen some of the pictures in the book of um of what abbey road was like at the time it looks very clinical compared to to what studios look like nowadays very clean and not no comfy chairs around and you know we imagine studios as being quite a comfortable creative place now it, it wasn't in the slightest it was very cold it, you were there to work and it, it's at one point, the, the Beatles were asked, how can we make the studio better for you? And they, one of the things that they said was, can we have some colored lights? Now, this was in the height of psychedelia and all of that. And still, all the studio had were bright white lights all the way along the studio. There was no dimmer. There was nothing. They were either on or off. So that was that was the room that all of that creativity from the Beatles through Pink Floyd all of these that's how it was we had to create within a very very cold situation and we because you're dealing with professionals they did it <laughs> um I'm, I'm interested in the dynamic of um of the control room there's not always an engineer and a producer and the band like there perhaps used to be, or and even a, a second engineer and all this kind of thing that, that used to be that way. From your experiences, do you think that there's merit in, in people retaining job roles like that in that aids creativity, the fact that you could concentrate on engineering, which meant that uh, George Martin could concentrate on producing and not have to worry about the technical sides of things? Oh, to, to me, you, you need to have at least one, one outside person be that call him the producer, call him the engineer, whatever. You need that outside ear that will, when 
that will guide the artist along as as they're struggling to to give the right performance. Uh, that one person can say. If, if, if they thought they did a bad performance, but it was really good, you need that outside ear to say, are you kidding? That was great. That was amazing. Or if they think it's great. You know what? You can do better. And you, you've got to have that. For me personally, you've got to have that outside uh, outside ear. I, I can't think of many people, maybe Prince. I don't, uh, there aren't many people that can produce themselves. Yeah, having thought about it, there isn't. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, I'm just satisfying my own curiosity here. Were you aware at the time when you were working with the Beatles? I mean, now they've they're they're beyond beyond belief the size that that band is. I mean, presumably that felt special at the time, but not it perhaps didn't feel as as a you might might not have been aware of just how stratospheric they were going to become, or or was it was it that way at the time? No, look, we knew they were huge at the time, absolutely. But to be talking about them fifty years later, absolutely no way on earth. As I, as I often say, rock and roll wasn't even that old at that point. So, the the fact that people would still be talking about it in fifty years is is absolute insanity to me. We should be talking about modern music, but unfortunately. <laughs> It doesn't live up to what was being produced back then. <laughs> it's a. I just think that's really interesting, and I love the idea that you wrote a letter to to what was EMI, and then what was it three three four years later, you're engineering the biggest band on the planet. That that doesn't feel like a story that is p- possible to exist in this day and age. I agree. Uh, look, all of there have been so many things. The first the first gig. The first session I'm ever assistant engineer on was the Beatles, side two of Hard Day's Night. The first thing I ever engineer is the Beatles. The first thing I ever uh, co-produce produce is Hunky Dory, uh, David Bowie. The, the, uh, a lot of engineers cut their teeth doing ads, radio ads, TV ads, the music for that and all of that. I only ever did one ad. And that was the uh, the Coke ad, I'd like to buy the world of Coke, which became the ad of the 70s. <laughs> it, it boosted Coke sales by 25%. It, it was astounding. It just, the way things came together for me, just phenomenal. And then being able to extend my career into a whole, whole different area, with, starting with Mahavishnu Orchestra, moving into the jazz fusion area, uh, when I was doing the book, I, I spoke to each member of Mahavishnu and asked them, why me? Because here was this English engineer that worked with the likes of the Beatles and uh, David Bowie and Elton John. I, it, why would a band like Mahavishnu Orchestra suddenly want to work with me? It made no sense, but it worked. Amazingly, it worked. And that set me on a whole different career working with with. Mahavishnu with Stanley Clark with Billy Cobham, Dixie Dregs, uh, it just uh, amazing. What do you think it is about you that that drew artists to you in that way? I don't know. I have no idea. They they obviously like what I do. So that's all I can say. And what I do is very little. I I rely on the artist. I do. When I set up a session, I set up the session exactly the same way every single time. I always use the same mics. It's always the same. The EQ I use is always the same. I rely on the changes in sound and in everything coming from the studio, from the musician, from his instrument. That's where it it comes together. And once again, that goes back to working at Abbey Road on on 4-track. Because the desks that we had back then, the red desks, the EQ was so limited. You learned back then that you get the sound in the studio because you can't do much in the control room. You had t- top and bottom. That's it, wasn't it? High end and low end. It was mids. Ah. It was 5K and 100 cycles. And there was a box that we used to call a presence box that you could plug in, which was uh, you could add or cut at either 2.7, 3.5 or 10K. Wow. So that, that was how limited we were. How little that EQ affected anything. There are several tracks on the White Album. The, the Beatles got this thing in their brain that 
they wanted every track to have full bass and full treble. So the, before we ever set up the mix, pulled up a fader, they'd say, okay, full bass and full treble on everything. <laughs> and that's what we did. I love that. And you can't really tell the difference which ones were like that and which ones we did very carefully. So it shows how little effect our EQ had. It all had to come from the studio. And that stuck with me all the way through the years. It's still that way. I think that's such a, I mean, I think that's what I, I took away from your book and what I'm really enjoying getting from speaking to you now is just how inspiring that message is of using using the same things every time. And it, it demystifies the recording process for, for a lot of people, I think, and makes it about the music and the song. And That's what it should be about. <laughs> if you've got a good song, you've got a good performer, it, 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 it's easy for, for me. It's it's been such a joy doing what I, I do because so much of it is I get the sound, then I can just put my feet up on the board and just have great music wafting over me. And then it's down to the musicians. On along these lines, if you were to to give a, a piece of advice to to artists who are home recording or even aspiring engineers, if there was one one lasting piece of advice you could give, what what do you think it would be? I've no idea. I I can I I have a piece of advice that I tend to give students uh, for when when they leave school and, and are looking for a gig, I, I just tell them, write a letter. It, it, it's no one writes letters anymore. It's all done by email. And I don't know if, if you're like me, but I get so many emails, most of them go straight into the trash. <laughs> and it, it, it's, if you send a, a letter that puts you apart from almost everyone else, which immediately will stand out, stand out to a studio manager. Hearing that advice, to me, that also means don't be afraid to ask the question. Again, from the, the stories that you say in your book, you you've don't seem to have been afraid to take on responsibility and, and do, do the things that people ask you to do. You know, there must have been a huge weight on your shoulders or you must have felt it when you went into to engineer your first Beatles session as an engineer. Are you kidding? <laughs> it was horrendous. It was what I what I'd wanted for years, but it was so scary. But you did it, and you you were willing to put yourself in that position and take take the bull by the horn, so to speak. You've got to it. it I, I even up to today in a totally different way. Uh, my my wife and I, as I said, we were living in in Nashville. And um, we, we had to get out of the States. We, we, we had to leave that country. Uh, and I, talking to a friend, I was then offered uh, this, this gig at Leeds Beckett University. And within, I think it was about six or seven weeks, we sold up everything we had in the States, lost a fortune doing it because we had to do it so quickly, but uh, sold up everything, moved over here, not having a place to live, not knowing the area at all or anything like that. We moved over with six suitcases. Wow. That, that's at like 68, I think I was at the time. If you don't go for things, then uh, what, what's life all about? It's very unexciting. It's very boring. <laughs> um. I've got one one last question that's just again to satisfy my own curiosity. Um, Billy Cobham, what was he like to work with? Amazing. I'll say the same for most musicians that I've worked with. They're they're great. Bill was uh, one of the heaviest drummers, hardest hitters that I've worked with, and that that comes from. Uh, kneeling down placing a bass drum mic when he suddenly decides to crash a cymbal and uh right by my ear <laughs> <laughs> oh my hearing was bad for a little while after that but uh no he, he really nice guy uh yeah great talent great great writer as well some of the stuff that he wrote spectrum uh i don't know how i came across it but as a young teenager just really gripped me there was something something about that album that's very special it's a very special album that to me was was the the most definitive jazz fusion album and i i say that because you've you've the, the mix between rock and and jazz on that is 
amazing. And that's because you, you've got uh, Bill and you've got Jan Hammer, who come from jazz backgrounds. You've got uh, the, the bass player, Lee Sklar. He's a session bass player. He's played with everyone. Uh, and then you've got Tommy Bolan, who he was nothing but a rock and roll guitarist. That's what he wanted. He, he wanted to be the ultimate rock and roll star. And somehow all of those four people fitted together so well on that album. And it, it just, it was a classic. And one, once again, it was, for me, it was put the mics in place, listen, twiddle a few knobs, sit back with my feet up on the board and just listen to great music. I, I think that just about sums up <laughs> everything that you've been saying. I'm really conscious of taking up too much of your time and um, I could listen to you talk all day. It's it's so honestly so inspiring to speak to you. Just to hear the way that you do things and your philosophy on, on all these things, It's um, it's been really special. Thank you. Oh, some, some people think I'm a grumpy old man these days, including me, but... Uh... <laughs> I think we've all got a grumpy old man in us somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say, if you want to do this again later on down the line or something, then I'm more than willing. That would be amazing. I'm sure that, that I'll come up with a hundred questions that I didn't ask, but I would, uh, yeah, I'd really appreciate that. You're welcome. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much, Ken. And um, I will no doubt speak to you again in the future. I do appreciate it. All right. Good luck. There we are. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, Ken's such a lovely and generous guy, as you heard. Um, I'm hoping to have him back on the podcast to do a a special question and answer episode. Um, So if that's something that takes uh, that you like the sound of, then get in touch with any questions that you have. Um, and I will hopefully be putting them to Ken in an episode soon. So, uh, keep an ear out for that. Um, So next episode in a fortnight's time, we're going to be joined by Stuart Taverner, um, who is a vintage microphone specialist um, from York, not too far from where I am. Um, And he it's a super interesting conversation. Um, So I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you. As always, a huge thank you to my good friend Joe Kane for the entrance and outro music to this podcast. Um, And another shout out to David Henshaw for the beautiful artwork. Um, please find us uh, on Instagram. Please find me on Instagram uh, at All You Need Is Drums and on Facebook forward slash All You Need Is Drums. My website's All You Need Is Drums.com is where you can get in touch with me. Uh, Joe at All You Need Is Drums.com. Um, please uh, like and give us a rating on iTunes, um, Apple Podcasts. I keep saying iTunes, but it's Apple Podcasts. Um, really does help. Um, and don't be a stranger. Give me a shout. Um, right. I'll see you in a fortnight's time. Au revoir.